You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm delighted today to be joined by my colleague and friend, Scott Kennedy. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here with you, Steve. Scott is the Senior Advisor and Trustee Chair in Chinese Business and Economics at the Center for Strategic International Studies here at CSIS. Today's conversation is the second in a series that we've begun here as part of Coronavirus Crisis Update, focused on what's unfolding, the dramatic, complicated, fast-moving picture within China and external to China, tied to the sort of big changes in zero COVID and what's following there. So we're going to begin today by asking Scott to talk to us a little bit about the visit that he paid back in the fall, six, seven-week visit to Beijing and Shanghai in China. Scott's worked with Yan Zong and myself. He and Yan Zong Wang from CFR have co-chaired a working group on U.S.-China relations as part of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Been very, very generous. And as part of that work in his time in China this fall, which is quite unusual to go for that length of time under these circumstances. He was looking at some of these critical questions around the attitudes towards zero COVID, towards the pandemic, the prospects for restoring a better dialogue with the United States. So share with us, Scott, just share with us sort of the top line around what you were trying to do in China in that period and what were the key revelations. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here to talk with you. And I really value the collaboration that we've had over the last few years on this critical issue. I'm interested both because I follow China and want to figure out where it's going and because I care about addressing global public health issues. Uh, but of course, COVID has touched all of us uh, personally. You know, I've had family members, myself has had COVID, and that's the intersection of personal and professional lives as deep as you can get it. So I'm really focused. I actually first tried to go to China last spring uh, and was uh, in San Francisco waiting to board my flight to Shanghai. When the U.S. government said, do not go to Shanghai because of the lockdown that they began to impose there that lasted two to three months. So I reconfigured my trip, went to other places in Asia, then went home, did my laundry, repacked, uh, headed back to China for six to seven weeks in September and October. And a chance to see what life was like on the ground, Uh, talk to people about China's economy, society, politics, U.S.-China relations, and of course, observe uh, how they're dealing with the pandemic to see beyond what is in the headlines of, of People's Daily. And, you know, what I found there is that zero COVID was fundamentally shaping the country's trajectory, society's relationship with the government, uh, the economy, China's relationship with the world. I mean, just getting to China is dang hard. Usually it's 15 hours from door to door from my home in Falls Church, Virginia to my hotel in Beijing. Uh, This took a lot, lot longer and included 10-day quarantine in Beijing, which uh, most people don't want to enjoy. And I would encourage them not to want to enjoy it, even though I went through it okay. But what you find once you get out of quarantine, you're interacting with folks is a few things. First of all, people were very unhappy with zero COVID. Three years in is a long time to face uh, these restrictions on your lives. And particularly since the Shanghai lockdown, which really was very, very difficult for the people of, of, of that city, 26 million plus forced to stay in their homes for two to three months. Most people in China have relatives, friends in Shanghai, 
they go to Shanghai. And so they felt this really unbelievable result, which they thought was totally unnecessary because the Chinese government's policies in the, in the lockdown really made things far worse than they, they needed to be. And so I think people just fed up and frustrated. And I, I encountered that everywhere I went when I was in Shanghai. People were fed up, frustrated, and depressed, still traumatized by what they had gone through. So I knew that the Chinese couldn't stick with zero COVID much longer. And in fact, the other thing I found is, you know, the Chinese government was already considering plans for how to exit zero COVID. Public health officials already put forth a whole variety of proposals. Uh, the WHO and others had weighed in. Experts at think tanks from around the world had also given ideas. And so the Chinese, we knew, were not going to stick with zero COVID much beyond the 20th Party Congress, which was held in, in late October. It didn't end the way people thought it was going to end, but we knew it was not going to stick around permanently, even if the propaganda said that it would. The other thing is, you know, China's economy, uh, uh, zero COVID was a big weight on the chest of economic activity. Uh, consumers weren't consuming, investors not investing. China's economic growth, uh, they say, was 3% last year. I'd really love to see the evidence for that. I didn't find that particularly given what happened in Shanghai, uh, supply chain restrictions, uh, et cetera. And so that had a, a real pull on things. And then as a result of all that, that dissatisfaction, it, you know, ended up bubbling up into uh, protest, uh, which occurred just after I left. People frustrated across the country. Really, zero COVID helped galvanize the Chinese population in a unified way we hadn't seen in a really long time. So change was coming. I didn't know exactly what it would look like after I left, but we knew that China couldn't do this uh, much longer. So, in terms of the protests, very high youth unemployment, right? Over 20%. The frustration with low economic growth, stalling in the economy, the actual duration of living under these controls, and the intensity of it and the sort of fierce and rigid way in which people's lives were being manipulated. All of those things came into play. Then there was this match that sort of lit the flame and there was this incident with, with an apartment building going on fire, right? And that kind of brought people out. But people were willing to protest more than we've seen really since Tiananmen. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Well, I'd say, you know, there are a lot of protesters in China. Um, a lot of people that go to court in China. So even though you've got a very powerful state and not a history of people being litigious, actually people speak up inside institutions. Yeah, a whole lots of issues on the environment, lots of different things. China has hundreds of thousands of IP infringement cases, Chinese against Chinese. They're also upset with people stealing technology from themselves. So, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of protests every year. Usually they're relatively small. Certainly, if you go back to 1999, the protests around Falun Gong, those were politically even more important than this because they 10, 20,000 Falun Gong protesters surrounded the central party headquarters in Beijing. That was much more of a direct threat to uh, the leadership back then. Uh, there have been other, other protests which have really been significant. I don't want to understate the significance of these, but Protest in China is really quite regular. When you look at what happened, I mean, you had, you had, they could no longer control the speed and scale and scope of the Omicron infections. So it was becoming clear September, October that those, there was a wildfire, they couldn't control it. The economic burdens were becoming untenable. Then you have these protests 
So the protest did get huge global media attention. Sure. But you think it may have been a bit exaggerated in terms well, of... Well, I think in terms of overall scale and challenge to the regime, I wouldn't call these unprecedented. Uh, I, and I think... But what it did do, it galvanized people across the country. They all were facing the same thing they did not like. Usually protests in China are this factory in this city isn't getting paid its wages and so they protest. People in this province are unhappy about how their group is being treated. This is really a national movement. Also, Chinese very skilled online, uh, very sophisticated, and so and also be able to communicate with each other. So these protests really uh, erupted and uh, on a common issue. I think we also need to recognize that not only was there high unemployment, but over time, Chinese people's values have changed. They don't want just rapid economic growth. They don't want just a car or a fancier cell phone or a house. They want what we would call the good life, right? And that good life inv in also involves their choice to do what they want uh, for themselves, for their family, uh, their, their futures. And they have, you know, postmodern values. They want clean air, clean water. They want to travel. And all of that was being restricted by this. And so we see a modernizing Chinese society with uh, intent and tools uh, to act up. And they said, you know, give us our lives back. And, and that's what the protests did. And in, I think the, the big shocking thing is that Xi Jinping in five minutes was like, hey, okay, here you go. Uh, we're ending this and uh, we're shifting. In that They had started to move away from zero COVID on November 10th with a 20-point plan. And that set expectations uh, pretty high that they were going to move away. And then there was some re-quarantining that went on because case numbers started to go up. And then people thought that that contributed to the deaths that occurred in that fire in Urumqi, uh, which got people upset. And then there's other cases that people were mad about. I think people were just shocked that uh, Xi Jinping in a, in a matter of a day would just simply do a 180 degree U-turn and uh, take the country out of zero COVID and say, you know what, this is not working. Um, and we really need to prepare for a different uh, trajectory. And so that's what we've seen the last you know, month and a half. So it was a precipitous change of course without much in the way of preparations for what this was all going to mean. And then you have this astonishing colossal outbreak that begins almost immediately, right? The, the doors are thrown open around December 7th or 8th. The leaked estimation that 250 million infections in the first 20 days of December, it's rather astonishing. How do you explain the lack of preparedness in this period? You know, uh, that is a question that we're going to be asking ourselves for a while. This is literally an I told you so moment because literally people were telling the Chinese government, you need to do ABC, XYZ, not just Americans and, you know, we have no basis for claiming we had the right answer, right? With over a million. 1.2 million dead. Exactly. But China's neighbors exited zero COVID, their own zero COVID policies in early 2022. And they gave a clear roadmap of doing three things, which folks told the Chinese they needed to do. Vaccinate, boost, elderly. yeah, the elderly, uh, boost. And, you know, the Chinese had 91% vaccination rate, but not very high amongst the elderly. And most people were last boosted in 2021. Second, prepare for people being ill. Hospitals, ICUs, oxygen, 
therapeutics, the whole works. The Chinese weren't prepared. Last thing, clear public information campaign. Here's what's going on with cases. Here's what you can do to protect yourself and have that handled by public health authorities on a daily basis. Having traveled in Asia amongst China's neighbors in the spring as they were exiting, I saw that every day uh, when I was in uh, Korea, Japan, and Taiwan. The Chinese had that blueprint. They decided not to use it. I think if we're going to look for a rational explanation, it's going to be they thought they were going to exit gradually and they would have done those things if they had stuck to the original plan. But perhaps Xi Jinping was so shocked by the protests and what that might mean for him. They just snapped his fingers and said, just do it and we'll just live with the consequences or die with the consequences. And I think Chinese public health experts, doctors are really up in arms about the situation that they have been forced to uh, deal with. I mean, it's important to remind our listeners also, I mean, the local governments who are bearing much of the burden of the mass testing and quarantining and the contact tracing and the like, they were running out of money. I mean, this was just a huge burden upon local governments. Uh, and, and it was, we still don't know the full accounting in terms of what percent of GDP or what percent of different, I mean, there's, there are different provinces coming forward and giving an accounting now, and it's in the billions in a fairly short period of time oh, that we're expended. Sure. For sure. I mean, when I was in Beijing uh, in Shanghai in the fall, I went through the regular testing regimen that everyone else went through every two or three days getting tested. 30 million people live in Beijing. Uh, if you test every three days, that's 10 million tests a day. It's about four Chinese yuan per test. You just do that, you know, day by day, year by, you know, week by week. It adds up to a big bill. Now, Beijing's got a lot of money compared to local governments around the country. They could have used that money and time and resources to prepare for, for how to exit more safely. Now, I think what people are trying to understand is, you know, what's the consequences? What's the toll? And we don't have great numbers. We do know that, you know, the Chinese came out a few days ago and said since early December, 60,000 Chinese have, have, have died as a result of the spread of COVID. But those numbers only include those who have passed away in hospitals and died of COVID, not with COVID. And so that doesn't include folks who passed away elsewhere. And, you know, if we say, you know, 900 million people have contracted COVID over the last couple months. If China performed the best of anyone on the planet in tackling this, that'd be South Korea, 0.1% death rate. That'd be 900,000 people. Now, perhaps they did better than them. And, you, you know, uh, Airfinity, a London-based uh, research organization, they estimate that so far around 600,000 Chinese have died. And they're projecting know. up to 1.7 million. That's right. So, you know, it's already in rural China, you know, even before the Chinese New Year holiday when everyone travels, that's coming right up this weekend. And so the Chinese say, you know, they've passed the peak. I'm not sure we really know what the data is and when they've peaked or, or, or not. You know more about the comparative perspective of other countries and how long Omicron waves typically last. And China probably maybe a little bit longer because it's a larger country than, than most of these other places. But in any case, I think what we'll need to do is a historical analysis down the road when we can look at overall excess deaths in China, which is the sort of best overall estimate you can use to, to determine not just the responsibility for COVID itself, 
but the effect of the pandemic and its restrictions on all types of ways in, in, in which people might pass. Because, you know, if you're focused on COVID, you're not necessarily treating people with cancer or heart disease the way you should, or there's a rise in suicides or other things. So somewhere down the road, we will get our arms around this. I don't think it's going to look like what happened in the Great Leap Forward, where we lost 30 to 40 million Chinese, a much higher percentage of the population. But this is going to be a big number that leadership is trying to explain to folks, hey, you know, you all should have been vaccinated. Uh, the, the wave is over. We're helping. Uh, but this is going to hurt public opinion. And it's a crisis of confidence that the Chinese Communist Party is going to have to work hard to overcome. So a lot is happening right now. You've referenced some of this. January 14th, the National Health Commission admits to WHO and the world their estimate of 60,000 dead between December 8th, January 12th. That number's been disputed quite a bit, but at least they are coming forward with some number that begins to approach credibility, and they are in an ongoing dialogue with WHO, and WHO's persistent effort to win cooperation and greater transparency and accountability is beginning to show some results, not complete results by any means. It's interesting at Davos this week in Switzerland, the deputy premier, Liu, eh? he spoke at the, about the reopening of the economy and making a pretty positive argument that the, on the other side of this COVID outbreak, the economy will come back. Then we had yesterday, President Xi delivers a speech to the Great Hall in Beijing and says, we're really in trouble here. As this next wave goes into the rural areas, we're not really prepared. And the state council trying to caution people around congregating and, and the like. And it's pretty clear that there is the Lunar New Year comes forward, first time in three years, that people are moving at that level. We may be at three quarters of what the level of migration has been pre-COVID, but we're talking about over two billion trips in this next period, a huge migration with the potential for spreading. And clearly the president is coming forward and admitting the threat. Now, it seems to me when you talk about the long-term cost of this, Yes, excess mortality will take at least until early next year to get a good estimate of what the excess mortality is currently. We're not going to get that number right away, but we can get to that number. It looks as though the, the price of reopening the economy is going to be the elderly taking a huge hit. And I wanted you to say a bit about that. What does that mean? If we have 2 million die and it's overwhelmingly elderly... In a short space of time, what are the ramifications likely to be socially or politically, would you guess? The Chinese Communist Party has said our way of dealing with COVID is better than everyone else's. We, through zero COVID, by restricting the ability of the virus to spread, are protecting the lives of people in ways that the U.S., uh, those in Europe and others, were unable to do because we care about our elderly and the people. That's what they said. If a lot of elderly and, and Chinese pre-existing conditions and others pass away, Chinese population doesn't have amnesia. They remember what they were promised and what the distinction was. This will hurt. It's going to be more difficult to get people to trust the party and what it, it promises. It's going to hurt consumption, uh, investment. It's going to be making people look for plan Bs, you know, sending their kids abroad to study themselves, looking for other types of exit solutions or just avoiding politics altogether. What the Chinese call lying down, Tongping, you know, really being much less active in, in many ways. 
does this really threaten the Communist Party's hold on power? Probably not directly. They've got so many different levers to pull. And in some ways, some people have accepted the party's line as they've switched course because they, they so desperately wanted their lives back. And they got vaccinated and they will accept this as a necessary cost to be paid. The Chinese line on this now is very similar to how they talk about unemployment, which is we're a market economy. If you lose your job or you have economic hardship, it's your fault, not ours, because the, the state's role is not to protect you that way. And so the political consequences as a result of, you know, a million, two million lives is going to be not very easy to measure. I think it's going to stain the reputation of the party, but I don't think it's going to put its uh, hold on power at risk. You think by the time we get to April, May, things will have restabilized and this will be largely behind Chinese? Or do you see this as a ongoing and lingering set of waves? I mean, people talk about this in many different ways. The modelers are talking about different patterns, timeline and patterns of progression. But the Chinese leadership clearly hopes to get on the other side of this and be clear to reopen without great complications. Do you think that's reasonable to expect? You know, I play a virologist on Zoom occasionally, but I don't like to do so on podcasts. So I'm going to leave that uh, to you and your colleagues in the public health community to do that type of modeling. I, w I would just say, you know, we thought we got to the quote unquote other side and we still, at least on paper, count 60 to 70,000 new cases a day. So we're going to be living with this virus the way we live with lots of other viruses and, and pathogens, I, I think probably permanently. But I think your question is more, will China normalize and start to look like the rest of the world that has opened up and tried to, you know, restart their economy, international engagement? And in that regard, I th my guess is probably by the spring, we ought to see that, that. the issue will be, are the moves uh, that you listed a few minutes ago going to really add up to a significant change that is successful in restarting the economy, reinvigorating public support, and reducing tensions between China and the rest of the world. The speech that Liu He, the vice premier, gave in Davos struck all the right notes. I think actually he got help from others in the West when he was thinking about how to strike those notes. I think the choir helped him figure out what he should say in that uh, speech. Xi Jinping going on TV showing that he cares. I think is smart. I think it, in Davos, the uh, head of Moderna also announced that they're in conversations about an mRNA vaccine, producing it and making it available in China. I don't know if that's smart, accurate public health conversation or a company trying to get attention from the media to, to promote what it's doing. It's interesting that the most uh, likely Chinese mRNA version that they've been working on uh, has been promoted by a Chinese company whose founder had worked at Moderna uh, several years ago, Boeing. And so it'll be really interesting to see if the Chinese really open up on that score. I think all of us need to come up with a checklist about what we think a real significant shift in China 
Chinese approach would be. It obviously needs to mean some type of structural reforms in the economy, really supporting the private sector and consumers, real liberalization of some markets, a effort to show that they understand that the concerns by the US, Europe, Europe, Japan, and others are serious. That might mean shifting their approach on Ukraine and Russia. So I think people are going to be trying to figure out how to measure China. You know, after 1989, Tiananmen, which you brought up a little while ago, it took about two years. And eventually, the world came back to China, even when China's economy was a lot smaller. Now, China's economy is a lot larger. It's more integrated to, with the rest of the world. What was economic potential is now economic reality. And so, you would think that there is a big incentive for the rest of the world to try and accept a Chinese shift, even if it doesn't address all of the concerns. But I think that there's also built up a lot of skepticism. So, I think what's going to be really interesting is watching the conversation between, say, the Biden administration and Congress others who are generally skeptical of the Chinese on one side, and then U.S. allies in Asia and Europe who want to tamp down tensions and conflict and deal with climate change and public health issues. Also in the business community, those who have run into problems with China that are looking for alternatives versus those who want to go back into China and are ready just to pour money back in. 2023 is going to be an interesting conversation where finally we are going to be really debating about what strategic competition is, what China is about, what the boundaries are, and how we're going to balance that against dealing with these global common challenges like public health that we all face. Thank you. I want to come back at the close here to your trip, to your visit in the fall. This was very unusual. You were the first person out of the think tank community here in Washington, senior person out of the think tank community in Washington, to go take that step to endure all of the various steps and uncertainties in getting there. You were successful at getting there. You were successful at connecting with a large array, diverse array of Chinese interests while you were there. It seems to me that looking back that you demonstrated something very important of what is possible in doing this, but you also began to break down what I think had accumulated over three years in terms of psychological barriers about thinking in the terms that you did. And you earned a lot of goodwill and respect for doing that, but you set a precedent. You set a precedent that ran up against those psychological barriers that have formed over the course of this pandemic that lead us to really think that something like that's not really possible. Just say a few words in closing like, you cracked the code a little bit and got people to think differently. Are other people also now beginning to follow? Well, it's really nice of you to bring that up and, and ask about it. You know, as a person who has spent his career traveling to the country that they study, I believe field work is just vitally important. We would never call someone who never visited the United States an U.S. expert, right? And so I feel in the dark about China unless I get on the ground and see it smell it, touch it, talk to people. And I think over the three years of the pandemic, we've got comfortable just reading the media and official bullet points and occasional Zoom calls with people. And I thought that we needed to, to break through that. There's a sort of uh, multiple levels of fear and anxiety to overcome. Certainly, you know, traveling to China with their zero COVID policy and what you saw with the Shanghai lockdown and how people were treated scares the bejeebers out of people about thinking about going to China. You had how Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, two Canadians were treated unfairly detained for almost three years in reaction to 
what China did in reaction to the detainment of, of Meng Wanzhou for extradition in regard to the Huawei case, you know, to be willing to go back to China, you have to face those challenges. In addition, we've gone through our own pandemic. I think we forget. We were locked in our basements, in our houses for months on end. We've had family members and friends die and just, you know, worried about what it means to interact with strangers. And so not just to get to China, but to get out of our house, to get to the airport, you have to overcome fears, to come back to the office, to hang out with you all. And then, of course, Chinese have been going through their own struggles. And then the relationship has been totally cratering because we have been facing each other, thinking about the worst possible outcomes and the worst motives on both sides. And I found, you know, once I got there, that people appreciated my effort to overcome those fears. And I think that instilled some confidence on their side and some willingness to re-engage. I do think that China scholars and people that work on global issues where China is important are thinking about and getting ready to travel to China again. And I think Chinese are going to start traveling globally, including to the U.S. Uh, so hopefully the trip was a little bit of an icebreaker at the scholarly level and hopefully as well to encourage both governments to talk to each other, whether alone, government to government or in broader settings. I don't think that we should see dialogue and conversation and travel as something to be feared, but as opportunities that come with risks, but also huge opportunities. Certainly, CSIS and other think tanks have a responsibility to come up with solutions to problems to try and make the world a better place and not just simply uh, hunker down and worry about how the world is going to come a worse place. So I'm really proud that I can collaborate with you and others here uh, to take those risks and chances because I think they will pay off if we just keep at it a little while. Thank you so much, Scott. That's a very eloquent way of ending what has really been a terrific conversation. So thank you for taking the time to be with us and thanks to Marla Hiller for producing this session. Thank you, and thanks, Mom. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Marla Hiller. In the first quarter of 2023, we will be transitioning Coronavirus Crisis Update into a new format and title that will encompass and carry forward that work on the COVID-19 pandemic, along with some other related work pertaining to HIV AIDS, and other areas of priority focus. Stay tuned for that. That work will be carried forward under the banner of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. Thank you.